G'day everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bear Necessities podcast, another week, another episode. Samuel, how are we first and foremost? I'm very excited, we have a massive guest on this week. Um, I'll get right to it and introduce him. He's an established and very famous children's author. Uh, welcome to the show, Andy Griffiths. Thank you very much. Awesome so, to have Andy on today. Absolutely. How you been going throughout the, uh, the lockdown crisis? Because you live in Melbourne, don't you? I do, down in Williamstown, um, by the beach. Uh, so look, it hasn't been too bad from a writing point of view. Uh, in fact, it was kind of good to get off the touring uh, circuit that I was on uh, fairly relentlessly because um, uh, I was doing a lot of overseas touring with uh, the Treehouse series over the last 10 years. And, um, and I was kind of like really needing a break. And uh, so you got to be careful what you wish for. Uh, COVID gave me that break. And um, it's been really good to be able to sink really deep into the writing and, um, and rethink it and revisit why, why I do it. And um, I have lots of letters from kids saying how much they've been enjoying the books through lockdown. So it's kind of been, yeah. A good, a, good for me yeah, yeah. bit of a blessing in disguise in yeah. some sense yeah definitely yeah. um but at the same time realizing what an awful situation it is over yeah, yeah. The same people yeah yeah you do uh obviously you do a lot of writing um have you read much since well since lockdown started have you done much reading yes yeah uh, that was one of my aims was to get back to uh to really long form reading and it's been wonderful for that i had a big pile of books you know by the bed and <laughs> the desk and in another shelf uh stuff that i've collected as i've been touring over the years and so i've drilled down into a lot of that stuff which is, has been really good. is there anything in particular like genre wise that you look for or are you sort of just read everything yeah <laughs> I'm pretty eclectic. Yeah, I, I love nonfiction. I love biographies, autobiographies of musicians in particular. I'll read a band biography anytime. Um, yeah. But a lot of psychological stuff, uh, a lot of um, uh, fiction I also love. Um, and um, my comfort reading is horror comics. Pre. Nice what they call pre-code horror comics from uh, before they were out of control in the 40s. The comic industry in America was enormous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people were just doing anything. And it was bizarrely violent, gruesome, ghoulish, awful in, in every possible and glorious. <laughs> um, and then they they brought a codes uh, authority in, in the uh, early 50s and said, look, you can't do this stuff. <laughs> you've got to be a bit nice but uh thankfully many of those comics exists and um and many are now available in collections which connects me back to my 12 year old self who used to read horror comics in uh, oh really in the early 70s yeah and they weren't they were still lurid but they weren't as bad as these ones but when i connect into those horror comics i get the same delicious feeling of possibility and fear and excitement that yeah. I did when I was 12 and so that's a very good state to write the books that I write yeah in. yeah so uh, talking about you being like you told me yourself and liking those comics um 
So you were born in Melbourne. Were you raised into a family that really enjoyed reading or were you, did you kind of come to that yourself? I think, well, I did come to it myself, but uh, my parents uh, had filled the house with books. Yeah. So there was, you know, Dr. Seuss books, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Uh, Classics, yeah. Yeah. Enid Blyton books. Um, we were taken to the library every week. So it's interesting because they're, you know, they're sort of more mass market thriller readers, but it doesn't matter so much. It's just that the presence of books in the house can make a big difference to whether you become a reader, because if there's books there, that's great. And what was great, really lucky in my background was my mother ran the secondhand bookstall at the primary school. Fake, uh, okay. Yeah. Vermont where I grew up. Yeah. And so for about a month before the fete, all the neighbourhood would donate books and then we had a spare room and it was full of hundreds and hundreds of books. Adult, kid, you know, non-fiction, fiction, books on psychology, which I was fascinated by even then. One called How um, the Magic Power of Your Mind. Oh, God. With the 1920s self-help <laughs> positive thinking classic. Um, but I was reading it, you know, uh, with great fascination. And that was a blessing because yeah. for a young reader to just be exposed to whatever is there is um, very helpful. Yeah. That's very good. Um, so you grow up, you, you know, you go through high school. Um, you were a teacher before you became a writer. Is that true? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. And I was, I was in bands, alternative bands before yeah. I became a teacher. Yeah. Um, so, um, I went to high school and I retained my love of reading, but I also developed a love of punk rock and just rock and roll in general. Yeah. And so that's where I directed all my early writing efforts through high school was into uh, writing song lyrics, oh, okay. or parody song lyrics, or whatever was on the radio. And we had a whole imaginary band and we used to, me and my friends would amuse each other so <laughs> with album covers and, and more and more outlandish and rude songs. And uh, we'd plan our world tours. And, <laughs> and it wasn't until year 12, the final day, we said, we should put this band on as a prank for the, uh, the, the last day of school. And we went, yeah, great. Who can play an instrument? None of us. <laughs> uh, uh, one of us could play drums and the other could play rudimentary guitar. And I was the singer because I'd written the words. And so we got up and it was just in the spirit of punk and just being obnoxious. Yeah. But the whole thing went off so well. People were so entertained. It was like, oh, this is, this, this is kind of feels good. Yeah. Um, so I did a, I did a degree at Monash University earning a, a literature degree for five years uh, by day. And at night I was in this band that eventually got gigs in the uh, sort of underground Melbourne scene of the early eighties, which was a very fertile scene where, which didn't rely on musicianship so much. It was more the ideas and the energy with which you presented on stage. Yeah. Um, so that was a real great early background in performing and also writing constantly. Beginning and, to write, yeah. 
and and also we'd make our own tapes um cassette tapes ah <laughs> uh, and we'd, we'd sell we'd put them in record shops and we'd we'd do our own flyers and advertise gigs ourselves so there's very much do it yourself and after a while when i realized look i I'm a good front person, but I'm not a great musician, <laughs> great singer by any means, um, but I love the words. And so I sort of segued out of music and into just um, doing writing courses, doing a dip ed, meeting a whole lot of high school students who hated reading with a passion. Uh, and then I started writing stuff for them and practicing my writing skills. And so that was then the beginning of my career as a writer and I started self-publishing the same way as we'd done our cassettes I started making little books and putting them into bookshops and yeah. board shops <laughs> so it's all do it yourself uh back then yeah <laughs> very much yeah um, um you don't have to wait for a big uh, major publisher to publish you no yeah true on the track and get really valuable feedback and and I used to sell them at markets. You know, I'd sit there with 10 little books. Um, oh, there's one. Uh, they were that size. Oh, oh God. <laughs> just, just, and they were cheap. They were like 12 pages, um, you know, oh. packed with words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 12 pages, but um, uh, fairly cheap to produce for about 10 cents and uh, staples. And I'd cut them up and stick them together. And you could sell them at a market for, say, a dollar or two dollars if yeah. you were lucky. And so that's how I began generating a little bit of money from uh, writing. But I was also being looking at it from a publisher's point of view, looking at which ones sold at the markets. Yeah. And in my case, they were all funny. You know, was, <laughs> the funny ones were the ones that would would outsell. So yeah. that was feedback to me as a as a writer. The, I was possibly a comedy writer rather than a proper writer. Yeah. So uh, would you say your inspiration as such to be an author came from writing music? Uh, it was there before that. I yeah. Was, even okay. as a young child, I was writing down things that would make people laugh. Mm -hmm. And it was usually... Some, something outlandish and op often the opposite of what you were supposed to write so a get well card would be dear dad get well soon or you are doomed <laughs> um, and a picture of him being buried in the ground yeah uh, with a tombstone <laughs> saying doomed um and so you know what can you do but laugh at that because it's taking the normal way of saying oh i hope you get better soon yeah and then threatening them uh, <laughs> is pretty much my whole shtick, really. Yeah, that uh, hasn't changed since I was six. But I was I was just writing things to entertain my my family, my friends, and myself. I had a little exercise book that I collected, you know, things out of the newspaper that amused me, that interested me, um, anything, really, and also. I had at the school fate, which was a very big thing in my writing career, I found an old 1920s typewriter. Ah. Oh. An Underwood typewriter, which was, um, cost me 40 cents. 
it was cheap even in those days. Okay, yeah. And, and I carried it home and it was all rusted up, but my dad got it working and I was fascinated by this thing. And I learned, to, I got a book and taught myself to touch type. And I would type out chapters from my favorite books at the time as typing practice. Yeah. But that's also really good writing practice. Um, when you're writing out what someone else has done, you start to see it from you feel it from the inside so yeah it was, it was always writing it was always writing for you yeah yeah could you tell us a little bit more about the comedy writing like how does that differ from say just writing a, a story <laughs> it's not a lot diff well it's it's a much of the same mechanisms um i was once talking i uh I share a publisher with Matthew Riley, um, the action novel writer. He's written, he started with Ice Station, written many action novels. And it was really fascinating talking to him one day because I realised we do the same thing. You ratchet up the tension. And in his case, he, he's writing an action thriller. He just keeps ratcheting it up so that it gets more and more exciting and you're on the edge of your seat as you are in an action movie. Whereas what I do is ratchet up the tension and then because my primary objective is to make the reader laugh, I'll ratchet up the tension and then pull the rug out from underneath <laughs> the hero of yeah, the yeah. story and they'll go flying. So all that tension then makes you laugh. And so it's, it's tension and release. Um, but it's just a different purpose. So that was really informative talking to Matthew. Um, and I went, ah, oh, okay, it's all storytelling. It's just what effect do you want the reader to have at the end? And my instinct was always to make them laugh. Um, even if I try to write serious stuff, I was hoping, still make them laugh. <laughs> like I was trying to make some money at one point, Women's Weekly, this is in the early hard years. Women's Weekly were having a romance writing story writing competition, write a 1,000 word romance story and you could win, you know, a few thousand dollars. Yeah. And I went, well, how hard can that be? <laughs> uh, and I wrote, and, and the heroine was in the hero's arms. She melted into his arms. And then I'm like, what if uh, he, she literally melted? Like, <laughs> He just ends up as a puddle and he's standing in a puddle of the woman he loves. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fucking, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't do anything sensibly. No. <laughs> Which was annoying to me at the beginning. Yeah. But then I went, well, that's my thing. This is yeah. what comes out when I pick up a pen. Uh, nonsense comes out. Yeah. And so I went, I'm just going to have to embrace that. I'll never be John Marsden. Yeah. I'll never be Morris Glutzman. I'll never be anyone who's being published. Uh, I'm probably just going to be this freak. Uh, <laughs> an artist uh, living in a rented room, um, just writing nonsense. But when I die, then they'll find a whole room full of nonsense and they'll go, this guy was a genius. <laughs> um, and I was kind of happy with that because that to me was what it was. It was more important to follow that little voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow what you kind of believe in opposed to maybe yeah. what other serious writers are writing. Right. Uh, yeah. But it, it also takes courage to do that because Definitely. you're not doing what everyone else is doing. Exactly, yes. 
And it was a long battle with publishers because you'd send it to them and they go, well, it's amusing and entertaining, but we can't see an audience for this. You know, yeah. it's too outlandish. Um, but I was like, well, I, I'd done my research in a sense. Uh, I knew Monty Python was almost cancelled after the first season because nobody really got it. And it wasn't until uh, repeats, repeats on late night television that students started to catch on. Yeah. So I knew a new style of comedy was going to bamboozle people at first. But I knew I found it funny. I knew my students at school had found it funny. I knew some of the people at the uh, markets were finding it amusing. Yeah. So I was like, the fact that publishers aren't getting it is possibly a really good sign that I'm onto something original. Yeah. Um, and also with kids. And Samuel, I think you were in one of my talks at a primary school. Yeah, you, I was in, a, I think, grade three and you came in. It was a pretty big deal, to be honest. Uh, you came in and uh, you talked at Wembley Primary School in Yarraville. Yeah. And yeah, um, I don't remember the exact day. I remember you being there. I remember you talking about, I think you were promoting a, um, your new Treehouse, Treehouse book. I think that was really early on in the it was very It was very early on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just as we were going, oh, my God, kids are really enjoying this, yeah. even more than the Just series. Um, and, and what I was going to say was kids are pretty savvy to anyone who's trying to be funny or trying to be, get down with the kids. <laughs> You know, you can spot a fake really fast yeah. and kids have got zero tolerance for it, which is why they start screwing or screwing up yeah, yeah. in a talk because this person is going, blah, 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 blah. I'm important. You're just kidding <laughs> about my life. And I never did that. And, and I think by following my own voice in the stories, I think kids recognised that implicitly. They went, this guy's nuts. Yeah, he's, he's interesting. <laughs> he's interesting. He's not trying to be funny. He just kind of is. is yeah. Um, so that was, in retrospect, it was a really good decision. But at the time, it did feel like I was putting myself outside of uh, the writing world. Yeah. Um, you have a new book coming out really soon. <laughs> a uh, new yes. treehouse book. Another treehouse book. Another treehouse book. <laughs> Nothing yeah. changed for can the last you, 12 years. Can you give us a little sneak peek into it at all? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's called the 143-story treehouse. We've gone up 13 stories at a time. Yeah. Um, and, and just uh, as a background to that, we had done the Just series for a long time. We did eight Just books. Yeah. Where, where Terry was just in the margins of the books and he would just do, scribble random stuff um, because I, that's the stuff I enjoyed as I was growing up and I would write the words. But I, I saw what he was doing and I thought, I really want to get you into the spotlight, like less words, more Terry and more illustration. Yeah. And we discovered we loved working together. It was like two school kids being naughty in the back <laughs> row, uh, just going, oh, look at this, look at this. Yeah, yeah. Draw something, I'd write something. And so we started doing books together, and those were the bad book and the very bad book yep. were part of that trying to 
influence each other in the same room. And we didn't know really what we were doing and we were just being bad and breaking all the rules, uh, which was great. We had the luxury because the Just Books were selling well, they could fund pure experimentation. Um, bad book upset a lot of people because it yeah. broke lots of rules. <laughs> uh, very bad book was people were a bit more used to it by that stage. And then we were trying to write the very, very, very bad, bad. book. <laughs> And we got down to, I used my parents' beach house down outside National, Wilson's Promontory National Park. And I said to Terry Wright, what have you got? Uh, and he said, we, we spent a week at a time doing these writing weeks. And he said, I've got a picture of my finger. And I went, great, great. Okay. What else you got? Uh, I got a picture of it, it was a little bird holding a really big gun. <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> and i said oh my god that is so funny that looks like the beautiful yeah cute little bird big uh, it was a collage gun he cut it out of a um, photo catalog yeah um and it was i was like oh i don't know where we can go after this like <laughs> don't get more bad than that i said let's just write a bad book about not being able to write a bad a book and we'll waste the reader's time for the whole book telling him why we can't write the book because Terry only drew a picture of his finger and um, <laughs> stuff like that. I said, we'll, we'll be in it, like me and you, um, and uh, we'll live in a treehouse, but it'll be a bad treehouse where people fall out. Um, there's no rails, there's no safety um, fence around the, the shark tank. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Bowling alley and balls will be raining down, killing people as they walk past. And so I said, can you just draw me, a, you know, that treehouse and I'll start work on what it might look, sound like. And um, then he just drew this beautiful 13-storey architecturally three-dimensional picture. And I went, oh, my God. Uh, I didn't even know you could draw like that. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I was an architecture student for a while and I dropped out to live in, to work in a record shop. And um, I went, well, this is too good for the bad book. Well, we should just write a book about living in this one, two, three, four, five, six, 13 story treehouse. And, um, and we won't be able to write the book because there's so much fun going on. Yeah. And then eventually that'll be the book. So that was how that developed over, um, yeah, it was about six or seven experimental books. And then we found we had the perfect vehicle for our humour and to blend it. Yeah. So that he's, te he's telling the story as much with his pictures uh, as I am with the words. And in fact, I can use far less words because his pictures are doing all the descriptive work. All the talking, him. yeah. So that then that makes it accessible to a very wide audience. And, and in fact, up until then, we'd hardly been published overseas at all. Other, other countries looked at what we did and just went, WPF, what? You Australians? Oh, crazy in that, yeah. And we just assumed there was no interest from the rest of the world and that's fine. Uh, so we'll just do this little fan thing where me and Terry are living in a treehouse. But really, at the same time, we toned the humour down. Bad book was all gratuitous violence. Uh, treehouse is like a, po a, a postcode. Um, like bad book is like pre-code. 
comics yeah. in, the, in America, whereas Treehouse is a little bit more gentle, and that opened it up to a really wide audience yeah. to surprise and delight. Um, so, yeah, we've just been adding 13 stories ever since then every year. 143 is about going on a camping holiday to uh, to de-stress a bit from uh, yeah. It was written last year, so there was a lot going on. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we go on a camping holiday and, of course, Terry forgets to pack the tent. He yeah. forgets to pack food. <laughs> uh, you know, we go fishing and capsize and it's all... Um, oh, and then we have haunted, spooky stories around the campfire because yeah. we hadn't kind of done a spooky book. Okay. Each, each of the Trias books sort of is based around a genre. 130 yep. was intergalactic action where we were abducted by giant flying eyeballs. So <laughs> it's got more of a science fiction-y sort of feel. This was our haunted stories around the campfire yeah. um, book. So, yeah. So um, just for the listeners at home, so you have all those things behind you. Um, is that eyeball? Is that the eyeball from the 130-story treehouse, uh, the one just behind you? Or is well, that... Well, the hundred it's the hundred and thirty story treehouse is actually made up. There is no flying eyeballs. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Just want to get that clear. Uh, but yeah, I went I went looking for retroactive inspiration. I went on to eBay and I went, I wonder if I can find some giant eyeballs. <laughs> giant inflatable eyeballs are only about ten bucks each. And so oh. half a dozen. You <laughs> never know when you might need a giant. Need a giant eyeball. <laughs> but that's that's part of uh, pre-lockdown when I would go into school. So I'd always have some props. Yeah. Um, because you kids are so, you know, um, got a tension span of about what two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you bring out a giant eyeball. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, <laughs> So props have always been important and they, they work on me too. So yep. just seeing those things around um, and, and it can, can come anywhere. I'll just, uh, secondhand shops are a mine, a gold mine of just odd things like that. Yeah, that. like that. <laughs> so you're showing us, what is that exactly? It's, it's a, a cat. It's a yeah. cat. Okay, yeah. I bought it because it just looked kind of, slightly you know possessed um and it wasn't until i gave it to jill when i got home because she likes cats and it wasn't until uh she touched its hand we realized oh it moves oh, <laughs> no it's all over the place. it's dancing it's supposed to sing a song it's lost its voice he's, lost his voice. <laughs> lost his voice. he's, he's camera shy <laughs> <laughs> It sings a slightly suggestive sexual song. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Uh, well, for no, the listeners, it's a cat dancing with a bow tie and it, it's dressed up like a, like a human person. It's, uh, <laughs> and it's singing a sort of pop song from about five years ago. Uh, I yeah. don't want you for a weekend. Da, oh, yeah. da, 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 da. <laughs> want you for a night. Da, da, da. You got to be mine. So, yeah, disturbing. Um, but anything like that, is grist for the the 10 year old inside me yeah I love, I love that that's so good that's who kind of writes the books like when i pick up the pen that 10 year old comes alive and goes right we're going to do this and sometimes as an adult i'm 
well, sometimes I'm an adult, uh, the adult part of me is going, oh, really? Do we have to go there? And, and, and yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and if, if Terry's in the room, it's, it's even worse. Um, and then once you've got that raw material, then you bring in the adult side, the editor side, the, the logical. Yeah. You go, okay, well, how is this going to work then? You know. Um, so it's a long process, um, although it's fast often to get the raw material onto the page. Yeah. Um, then we really work hard to make it seem logical, even yeah. though it's ridiculous. Even though <laughs> like so many crazy things are happening, yeah. So, so all, the, all the objects here are just sort of putting me in a zone. Um, yeah, get you in like that 10-year-old well, kid zone where you can write about all these imaginary things and all these wacky things. Yeah, because the, I can still remember it vividly. And Morris Gleitzman said it beautifully once. He said, I think with the children's writers, the window to childhood stays open at some point. Yeah, uh, It gets sort of jammed open so that you become older and you become an adult, but you can still, act, you can still remember exactly what it was like to be 10. And so that's a really pleasant thing to, to have. Um, and me and Te Terry are kind of, we have that 10 year old window pre-adolescence um, where the whole world is just full of amazing possibilities. <laughs> yeah. You can do anything and you like rig anything up. And, and that's what our books are kind of like. Yeah, they're definitely very entertaining and fun. You're not wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just... the number one thing is, is I always start with the end in mind. I want, I want the child reader to go, wow, that was amazing. You know, I, I love reading. Yeah. yeah. That's the number one consideration. Taste, morals, purpose. It doesn't matter as long as that effect is created. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the Treehouse books, did you try to, um, I suppose, portray yourself and and terry through the characters or did you sort of just let the characters differ from you two in real life um it's kind of uh it's something that happens whenever i write i i feel best if i'm writing from my own perspective mm -hmm. so like if i call their character me and say this thing happened to me uh it feels real to me and i can i can I'd be much more successful in convincing the reader that it's actually happening. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we know it's not, but that's the game is you're playing let's pretend with the reader. Yeah. Let's pretend this thing is real and then we'll, have, we'll, we'll get excited. Um, same as if you're playing uh, hide and seek. You yeah. know, you're, you're really scared as they're coming to look for you and it's exciting. It doesn't really matter, but you're still in it um so it's that kind of let's pretend I, I was always like me and in the just series it was andy yeah. with his friend danny yeah uh, who was my best friend at school and he was quite a larrikin and always in trouble um and andy and and so he's very much a terry sort of character um and there was a girl called lisa who 
Andy is in love with, who I was in love with in primary school. <laughs> and he's always trying to impress her, but it always ends up going wrong. Yeah. And so when I went to Treehouse, uh, Terry was obviously there and he was a, he was quite a character in the margins of the Just Books. He would often draw an, a rude picture of me or a, a being squashed by a piano. And uh, kids in the talks would say, did you realise Terry Denton drew a picture of you being squashed by a falling piano? And I, no. Went, yes, yes, look, it's here on page four. <laughs> right. When I get home, I'm going to smash him. <laughs> Do you live together? And I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In um, our treehouse, yeah. <laughs> That was kind of pre-Treehouse. People were wondering, what's the relationship between Andy and Terry? Yeah. Are they friends? Are they enemies? enemies Are they yeah. enemies? Uh, so, so that was the reality I used to create the Treehouse. I said, they already think we live together, so we might as well live in this wonderful Treehouse. Yeah. And we'll, we'll be able to smash each other with giant bananas when we're out. <laughs> yeah. And push each other into shark tanks and... But we'll always be friends in the end. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of reality. Now, I call them Andy and Terry because Andy's focused on getting the book done. Terry's pretty abstract and just you know, always wandering off track. And Jill is fixing a lot of their problems. Yeah. Um, now, in real life, Jill is an editor and I'm married to her. She fixes the the writing problems for us. <laughs> um, so the, you've got three different energies there, but at the same time, they're all parts of myself. Like I can be just as abstract and off track as Terry. And I'm pretty, a pretty good editor of my own stuff. I can come in and fix those problems. Um, so you're sort of dealing with your own energies because we're all many different energies yeah all, all competing for the steering wheel um and you can be quite focused in one situation and quite silly and abstract in another um, yeah and the more control you have and the more awareness you have over those energies the more effectively you can live life really so yeah. the stories are little psychodramas of me playing out but using terry and jill's mannerisms yeah um, life and and an extra level of an extra level of doubt for the reader is like is this true is this <laughs> that must be true if terry is true and yeah so i love i love that confusion between reality and um fiction yeah so like from that you got your your just book so like um, so you've got like your mini stories within like your just trickings, your, your just stupid and that sort of thing. Um, so you've got like Nick, uh, I've got a couple written down, uh, Nick Knockers Anonymous. Um, you've got the playing dead one. So are these like actual stories from your childhood, but then like kind of elevated a bit in terms of the imagination? Yeah. 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 I'll start with a, with a tiny grain of truth. Like yeah. we did used to go Nick Knocking yeah. uh, in the seventies before the internet, before <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing else to do but annoy the neighbours. Um, you know, you'd, at night to knock on someone's door and run and hide behind the yeah. fence and watch them come out. And you just thought you were the funniest. Person. 
until I got chased one night by a brother of a friend. Oh, no. We got chased over the hill and we just kept running and... Oh my God. <laughs> he didn't he didn't catch us, but I was too scared to walk past his house for years. After. <laughs> um, so so I take that idea, yeah, the power that you have as a as a nick knock, and then I put it into a sort of worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, same with playing dead. Uh, we would often pretend to be dead. And sometimes, yeah, Danny and I would pretend to have a fist fight by the side of a busy road. Yeah. We'd pretend to knock each other out and then fall down dead uh, to see if we could get any of the cars stopped <laughs> and see if we really were okay. Um, that ne they never did. <laughs> oh, there's those two idiots. Yeah. Dead again. But in that one, it was like, what if I pretend I'm dead to get out as going to school? What would be the worst case scenario? Your parents pretend to think that you're dead and then they dig a hole and bury you. Yeah. <laughs> nice comeuppance there so so the original reality is is left behind very quickly yeah but you're feeling the whole story as as if you're getting away with it and then your parents are burying you and so i'm living all that sort of drama yeah um and putting it into the character to make it seem real yeah um sam do you want to ask about inspiration yeah, I was just going to ask about your inspiration specifically for the uh, the bum books. Now, those are my favourite uh, of, of yours um, growing up. So, like, your bum getting your um, your bums from Uranus. Yeah, um, where, was it was it easy writing that? And how did you come up with an inspiration for that? Because that's uh, that's definitely out there. It's definitely different. Yeah, I I done a forty hour famine. Um, one of those World Visions 40-hour famines, which were very popular. Not sure if they're still going, but um, it was. I was trying to kill time in the last few hours of that famine, and I started just writing down lists of, of ridiculous titles for book, like the most outlandish titles I could think of. And the day my bum went psycho appeared on yeah. that list. And when I came back, the rest weren't that funny, but this one made the class laugh. And so I started asking questions. Well, what would that even mean? Why would a bum go psycho? Uh, what would make a bum angry? What would it like to be a bum? Uh, you'd be trapped in someone's trousers all day long. Not a lot of fun. Uh, you'd be jealous of the head. The head yeah. gets all the fun. It gets to watch television, etc. cetera. Um, so maybe you'd be trying to plot against the head and get that position. So it's an endless series of questions and answers and so came up with the idea that the bum runs away and he has to go and find his bum, find his bum and yeah. the emotional truth is that bottoms are always a problem for kids as they're growing up they make they're releasing noises releasing gas and you get into trouble and you go it wasn't me it was my bum it's as if it's a separate part of you so oh, okay. then it just gave reality to that it could yeah. literally grow arms and legs and run. <laughs> and then that became useful at a certain point because I'd done about four of the just books and I was getting pushed back by librarians and conservative uh, gatekeepers of all types going, you shouldn't be telling the kids to bury themselves or you know, play dead and knock on doors, you know, because kids will just do these do things. That, yeah. 
I was going, oh, for goodness sakes, coming to the 20th century, you know, there's, we've got The Simpsons, we've got all this great stuff in other mediums, yeah. but you have to be all nice and kind of schoolish. And yeah. so I was like, I'm so sick of this because li libraries were taking my books out because a parent would complain. Uh, you know, my kid brought this home, you, an Andy Griffiths book home, and it's not right. So the library would take all my books out of the library. And I go, that's not right. Kids <laughs> enjoy them. Yeah. Um, the parents that don't enjoy them. <laughs> yeah. And, well, some parents do enjoy them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, one parent shouldn't be able to tell the whole school yeah. community what is fit to read. You need different types of books. And um, so I wrote The Day My Bum Went Psycho as a kind of screw you middle finger up <laughs> to the conservative literary establishment. Right? Yeah. I'm make you say bum over and over again. Yeah. Will we all move on, you know? And uh, so that's what the, it was kind of a prank. Um, I didn't know if I could write a novel, but I got a little book called How to Write a Novel in 52 Weekends. And I just went, okay, and wrote a prank novel. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a key to a lot of what I do is it's not serious. It's yeah. just a bit of a joke. Yeah. And, and I put a lot of work into it and then becomes a real thing. Um, and it had the sequels. Yeah, they were, they were very good, yeah. Yeah, and now I'm really embarrassed about it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. They were very good. Yeah. Because kids go from the Treehouse series now, you know, yeah. nice, relatively nice yeah. world. And they go, oh, what's this book? Oh, sure. Uh, they say the bum on the front cover. <laughs> They're not We've sure taken that off now too. Oh, have you? Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, just, uh, I don't know, the climate changed a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair enough. So it didn't, didn't seem quite so funny anymore. But Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, what is great about those novels, what I really learned from those is the long, ridiculous plots. Uh, they're just outlandishly stupid <laughs> of events. And that's what survived into the Treehouse books. Yeah. Uh, that's really a, a bum style plot. Yeah. Done with pictures and Andy and Terry and Jill instead of runaway bums, yeah. Yeah, because what you did really well, I thought, I just wanted to bring this up. What you did really well is because you said earlier that kids don't have, kids have an attention span of like five minutes or 10 minutes. So because you're always introducing something new or your characters are always doing something interesting and wacky, the kids are like, oh, what's next? And I think that's what made it, made your books really great. Thank you. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that's where they were, were aimed at. Um, yeah. And then, look, that's probably true of any drama too. Uh, as you get older, you might tolerate longer periods of of things apparently not happening but uh i think in a book a book is hard work as you're learning to read an emerging reader works for every word and every sentence you know the cat sat on <laughs> it's hard work it doesn't come naturally yeah and so the more little um prizes and bonuses you can put in for them yeah i wrote one called the cat on the mat is flat yeah. um because it's chasing a rat and the rat gets a bat and chases the cat uh, <laughs> so if you can do that then for each sentence they read there's a reward yeah and 
Terry's pictures are a huge reward for everybody because yeah. I can just go, hi, my name's Andy. And then there's the picture of Andy doing something silly. Uh, Here's our treehouse. And we're like, whoa. So you're, you're just absorbing the, the story without all that work. Yeah. We've spoken, and, um, sorry, we've spoken quite a bit about Terry um, and, and I suppose a little bit about your relationship with him. Can you tell us um, a bit more about that? Like how'd you meet and, and I suppose how'd you become such great partners in crime, I suppose? <laughs> uh, brothers in stupidity. I think. <laughs> <laughs> brothers in stupidity, that's good. Um, I, it was on my very first book, which was a book of creative writing exercises for teachers to use in the classroom to liven up their creative writing teaching. Uh, it was called Swinging on the Clothesline. And it came out in 1993. And it was, the, uh, it was published by an educational publisher who were the only ones willing to take a chance on my madness. And they said, um, oh, we'll get this great illustrator. He's called Terry Denton. Uh, he's a freelance illustrator. We think he'll be really good for this because he's pretty offbeat. And so he drew a beautiful set of pictures for it, drew the kids swinging around on the clothesline, flying off up into the <laughs> sky. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, he, he sort of can draw exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah. And so I eventually met him when I was promoting this book. And he said, um, you should do a book of fiction. And I said, yeah, I want to, but none of the publishers of fiction will give me a chance. And he said, tell them I'll illustrate it for you. So I was like a package at this point where, yeah. where I was an unknown lunatic and I had a well-established lunatic. <laughs> so he was very, he did, his early work is very beautiful, watercolour, thoughtful, nice. And I think <laughs> what he saw in me was a chance for his anarchist side to come out. So... I was, I was letting him release his, his madness. And for me, it was, yeah, perfect complementarity. So, so we've just worked together ever since. Um, and as I said, after a half dozen Just Books, I just really wanted him to come into the spotlight. So that's driven the evolution of everything since. Um, yeah, he's really agreeable. He doesn't, uh, I'm probably the more angsty one of the, the relation. I'm like setting the deadlines. Uh, we're going to do that. <laughs> and he's like, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's been a perfect, uh, and there's no battle of egos in it. Um, there is in the books because <laughs> you need drama and you need Andy strutting around going, my words are the best. And, Terry, yeah. your words are stupid. Everyone's ears are pictures. Um, but of course, it's a ridiculous argument. Um, but yeah, it's just been really um, a joy. And, and to have 25 years to have done all these experiments uh, is, is very luxurious and, and kind of unusual too that an author and illustrator would work so closely. For, and for his, that long, yeah. His illustrations will influence the text as well. This yeah. is, I'll I'll set out a text. He'll set, he'll do some rough pictures, and then I'll change the text to fit the pictures, or or vice versa. 
Yeah. So it goes backwards and forwards for a year uh, as we figure it all out. Yeah. Do you have uh, any big new sort of plans coming up or are you just sort of going to ride the wave with the, the tree house and, and that sort yeah. of thing? <laughs> well, we've been riding that wave for a long time. I originally thought maybe three books might be, you know, the right amount, but there was no diminution of energy on our part and the audience was just getting more and more excited so I went, oh, I think we can do a few more because I never, I don't want to stay outstay my welcome yeah. um, on stage or in a in a book series. Uh, so I said maybe seven, maybe seven would be a respectable Harry Potter style number yeah. to to go for. We're still having so much fun at the seventh book. Uh, I said, well, maybe ten, maybe <laughs> ten. And now we're on to the 11th book. And yeah. I've gone, well, we started with 13 stories. Every book has 13 chapters. 13 might be the magic number. Yeah. And uh, I think that probably is the one because it's getting really difficult to think of new levels and new plot lines that we haven't already done. And that's always been the, the, the challenge is to do something new in every book so the reader doesn't feel like you just... Repeating, yeah. Repeating, because that's when you lose interest in, you know, in a band or a movie franchise where you go, yeah. oh, I've seen this. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Next. <laughs> <laughs> so 13. Uh, but I did do a lockdown project this year where I wrote um, a book called, uh, it's called Top Secret Treehouse Tales. Tales too silly to tell until now. Um and they're more like just stories. So they're a thousand word stories, 13 of them, with, with Terry's illustrations relegated to about 20% of the page yeah. and the words taking over. Because I can then go to places I can't go with the 50-50 with the, uh, books. Yeah. In the, the limitations of the treehouse, if you want to call it a limitation, is that everything I write about has to be able to be visualised. Whereas when you're just writing words, you can get away with a lot of stuff that's quite impossible. One of the stories is called uh, Chair Up Your Nose Day. Uh, and it starts with Terry, hey, Andy, uh, do you want to do you want to chair up your nose? And Andy goes, no. And he says, well, have one anyway. <laughs> uh, chair up your nose day. Come on, celebrate. <laughs> um, so everyone ends up with chairs up their nose. And I don't even... It's a bit like the day my bum went psycho. I don't even know what that would look like, but you can just have the the entertainment in your head. So, yeah. so that's a, a lockdown project. But I don't know where we'll go after after thirteen treehouse books. I'll I'll tell you in two years. Tell us in two years. Yeah, get get you back on the podcast in two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. We spoke earlier about the very, very bad book and how that didn't quite make the the cut. Um, yeah. Are there any other sort of ideas like that that you maybe didn't quite make it or were very, very close to making it but didn't didn't get there in the end? Not really because any ideas that were there have been incorporated into the treehouse. So... Okay. Uh, a few books back, Andy writes his autobiography, 
was they're making a film of the treehouse and he gets bumped by the director who says, we don't need a narrator. Uh, you're not in the, the story anymore. And Andy's like, oh, I don't need Terry. I don't need anyone. I'll just write my own autobiography. And it's just a ridiculous waste of time where he's just going, uh, first I was born and then I got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And like, <laughs> yeah, that's the joke. Um, <laughs> now that would have sat perfectly in the very, very bad book. Yeah. Uh, what the treehouse gave us was a framework where we could embed stuff like that as part of a wider story. So we kind of get my cake and eat it too, in that sense. So yeah, treehouse has mopped everything up. And I mean, one reason we didn't do the very, very bad book is because we'd done everything we could think of in that mode. Yeah. The bad book and then the very bad book um, yeah. refined it. And you see, oh, there's another example in the 13th story treehouse, Barky the Barking Dog is a television show that Terry likes. Yeah, yeah. With the dog barking uh, repetitively for five pages. Yeah. little um, <laughs> uh, boxes. And so that, again, is a bad book idea that's now being used as a plot. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're drawing your ideas from ones that maybe didn't get used before into your treehouse. Yeah, and there's a purpose to it because Andy's saying, okay, Terry, let's get on with the book. And Terry goes, no, it's time for Barky the Barking Dog. <laughs> and Andy goes, <laughs> and has to sit there. And then when that's over, Andy is fuming. And then he says, now can we get on with the book? And Terry says, no, it's time for Buzzy the Buzzing Fly. <laughs> and Andy goes, no, it's not. And he throws the television out the window and it almost hits the postman who is bringing a, a delivery of sea monkeys or something to them. Uh, so you can see that this idea is funny in itself, but yeah. it's also being used to drive a longer story. Yeah. So this was something, you know, that we just discovered by accident, really. Um, and it was so satisfying to us and to the readers, because I think what re bad book was sketch comedy. It was like disconnected sketches, whereas Treehouse starts joining it up into a into a plot. Yeah, uh, and readers love long form stories, uh, even if they're about bums running away. <laughs> uh, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'm in. You know. <laughs> um, how long's the process from say you finishing the um, writing the book and Terry's done all these illustrations and you send it off. How long's the process um, from then till it comes out on shelves in stores? Um, it's actually fairly quick. It's about eight weeks. Once, oh, wow. okay. once the book is finalized, it goes to the printer uh, about eight to 10 weeks before it's actually on the shelves. So okay. Is that um, dependent at all on how long the book is or not really? Not really. Uh, if it was going to be extraordinarily long, then that might be taken into account uh, in the, the schedule. But generally, a, a writing schedule is about 12 months. So I'll need a couple of months. If, you, if like, you work all bits and pieces everywhere, but if you really... Um, formulated it it would be two months of just noodling around 
playing music and messing around in this room, uh, telling people I was working. But by the end of two months, I would have a, uh, a fairly detailed outline of the story that I can read to Jill and Jill's going, oh, yeah, I can see this story. I, I, I want to read that. Then I'd start putting it into page form and adding all the dialogue and uh, making a draft. And then, so that would be another two months. So by, by the end of four or five months, you've got a rough draft. Then it goes to Terry for rough pictures. I yep. held that for two, two months. Then the rough pictures come back and we go, oh, he's drawn the wrong thing. We, we said three cats and he's got five cats. Uh, but then I'll go, actually, it works better with five cats and let's just change the uh, text. And then that, that will happen in smaller and bigger ways that Terry's illustrations will introduce something we hadn't thought of. They will change the book. He'll need to change the illustrations accordingly. And then finally we get to the point where he says, right, have you finished changing things? Because <laughs> uh, I was always changing them right up to the public, the printing date. Yeah. And he's going... I'm going, yeah, I'll leave you alone now. And so then he does the final art. Um, we'll still mess around with it, but usually with the help of the designer, we'll, um, we'll help us. Like Terry might have forgotten to put night sky into a picture. Yeah. So the designer can add that uh, afterwards. So we just, we're designing it right up to the day it goes to the printer. And yeah. then we just have to walk away. Because walk away from it, yeah. Always see ways to keep doing yeah that. <laughs> um so we've spoken about earlier um how you haven't been able to really travel anywhere and you've had a nice like kind of um year and a half off from traveling yep. around the world but um what was your favorite place to go and advertise your book far from australia um uh, america is always they love it over there 50 51 countries in in one uh yeah i get a, a tremendous <laughs> energy and excitement from America um that was amazing New York and Los Angeles yeah and all the obvious places but also the non-obvious places Seattle or uh, oh, okay yeah have to go to the birthplace of grunge uh down to uh, the southern states which was interesting yeah I saw you in um on Instagram on in I think it was Texas yeah yeah yeah. Big, big readers in Texas. One of the biggest library systems in the world is in Texas. Um, Las Vegas is Las Vegas is like a place that's made up, like it's a fictional Disneyland for adults. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't gamble. I don't understand that at all. I just look at oh, this place. All the lights and yeah, yeah. So, um, so that kind of travel and ex that excitement that you get from travel and being in new places is really useful as you're designing, uh, you know, a treehouse that is magical and yeah and outlandish. So so travel has served as a as a form of research. Um, I did go to Iceland a couple of years ago. Oh, really? Not because I'm published there, but because I just wanted to see it. Yeah. That was like going to another planet, um, <laughs> like going to Venus. And yeah. <laughs> Uranus, yeah. <laughs> Uranus, yeah. The, the volcanoes, the starkness of the place. Yeah. 
They, there was a geyser that up, erupted every 15 minutes um, with, with hardly any protection around it, bo boiling waters blasting into the air. And there's just like a little rope string around it. And everyone's cheering as it goes off. And uh, we have a baked bean geyser in the new treehouse, which yeah. is directly related to that. <laughs> um i had to put you on the spot oh sorry uh, i had to put you on the spot but um do you have a favorite do you have a book that you're most proud of or the one that you most enjoyed writing um they're all they're all pretty important for their for the reasons i've been talking about because each yeah. one is a breakthrough to a stepping stone to the next yeah um the very bad book was my favorite for a long time okay uh, that's probably, and I think Terry might even agree with that himself. We loved the anarchy and the, the pure freedom of those, of that book. Um, and the Treehouse series as overall, I'm really proud of. Um, and in that probably 130 or six, uh, six I can't even remember. <laughs> well, I didn't want to go to 13 books. Uh, <laughs> 69 story treehouse uh where they go i'm sure i've got that wrong where they go time traveling yeah because the time traveling plot and the flying eyeballs intergalactic stuff is linked right back to my horror comic um, yeah back to your what you really liked as a kid yeah yeah so, but yeah it's a, it always changes and it's usually the book i've just finished writing because that's the one where I've fixed up all the problems from yeah. everything I've ever done until I get six months away and I go, oh, I could have done that better. Uh, <laughs> I'll in the new one. Yeah, so it's a yeah. never-ending process of, of development and, and excitement, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the last thing um, that we want to ask is what's next for you? Like, will we see you in a punk rock band around <laughs> Melbourne? anywhere any gigs what's next or are you just are you just gonna keep on writing what's the plan well as clint eastwood said in one of the dirty harry movies a man's gotta know his limitations <laughs> the clean clint eastwood say yeah i don't think i'll be i have done a few spoken word gigs where i have sung over the past few years um stereo stories as part of the williamstown literary festival where you talk about a song that you loved and um, and the, there's a band. And so I have got a little bit of singing out um, in those formats. And there is another podcast called Almost a Mirror, where I've provided backing vocals for a version of the birthday party's Nick the Stripper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I'm, they asked me, would I, would I provide vocals? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> can't sing and they said we know that <laughs> stereo stories thing we just want you to scream and grunt and make noises and I, said, oh, I think i can do that uh so i'm really proud about that um it's on Bandcamp. if you look up nick the stripper uh almost a mirror with anna simic does the main vocals and phil calvert the original birthday party drummer does the drums so I, th I think, you know, having achieved this high point of my recorded career, I will um, walk away with dignity. <laughs> walk away while you're on top. 
Mind you, the idea of being in a punk band does appeal to me. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're not too far away from Williamstown, so we'll keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah, Alrighty. we know about it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks very much. Um, we appreciate your time a lot. Uh, we understand you're very busy, but yeah, thank you very much. It's we're been looking, a pleasure. We're looking forward to your next Treehouse tree story coming out very soon. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, and thanks for your great work. It's been fascinating. Do, do you, are you writers yourselves? Well, um, I've to... done bits and pieces of writing. He dabbles. Um, I dabble a little bit, but um, yeah, no, not, not, nothing too serious. Yeah, well, that's what I said for a long time, too. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.